For six generations, the Jones family has been providing high-quality meats. And now, we're providing treats for the best member of your family, man's best friend, aka the goodest boys and girls. Jones Natural Shoes makes bones and treats that are sure to be savored by your dog and are made from the best natural ingredients available. Our flavorful chews are made from natural animal parts and will have your puppy drooling with happiness. From treats like sticks and chews to savory bones and patties, we've got you covered for finding the perfect reward for that special pup in your life. Jones Natural Chews come in all sizes, so make sure to choose the right treat for your pup. And remember, it's important to be supervising your pup when they're enjoying their treats to keep your puppy safe. Jones Natural Chews, available at a pet store near you. Or visit jonesnaturalchews.com to get started with our store locator tool. That's Jones Natural Chews, available at a pet store near you. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. With what feels like a never-ending stream of news and information surrounding us every day, how do we ever actually get something useful out of it all? Well, that's what the Assorted Goods Podcast is all about. It's a more casual perspective on what's going on in the world, where each episode your host Dan, myself, a regular guy turned curious mind, dives into a topic from the news history, or whatever's on my mind that week. Then we slow it all down and dig a little deeper, passing along all the things that I learn from me to you. Subscribe to Assorted Goods wherever you listen to your podcasts, and join me on my journey to learn a little more. And you know, not be too serious about it. I'll see you there. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. With cocaine, one snort, and it just owned my body and soul. Something in my system wanted that. And once cocaine was there, it was like the missing link. Click. 
like when you turn on lights, it's on or off. There's no halfway. Cocaine was like my on switch. Stephen King. Some people understand that feeling of an on switch that Stephen King describes. It's a need, a compulsion, an overwhelming drive for some of us who dared to dance with the allure of a substance that could make us forget our pain, suffering, grief, and heartache. It's a dance with the devil that some of us sign willingly, knowing that the next big hit, the next big high, could be our last, but still doing it anyway. Still chasing that dream in hopes of leaving ourselves behind and losing oneself to the drift of a high. Some of us come away from the chase, realizing that at some point, something has to change. Something has to give, or we will lose our lives to following that high. Some of us are never able to stop. Never able to stop the pursuit of that demon that lures us in with promises of escaping the prisons of our lives. Join us for our upcoming series on the struggles of addiction and where we explore our very human need to escape our lives and fall down into the spiral of drugs and alcoholism, even if that spiral may one day lead to our very own demise at the hands of a compulsion we cannot control. If you or a loved one has been struggling with addiction or has in the past and would like to share your story, please feel free to reach out to me via social media or through email at juryroompodcast at gmail.com. Welcome to Addicted, a Jury Room production. Coming soon to wherever you listen to this podcast. Hi there, nerdlings. I'm Ash. And I'm Nat. We're the host of Primetime Nerds, a podcast that focuses on lesser-known investigations, unsolved cases, serial killers, and small-town crimes. Join us as we pick up our flashlights and begin our search for answers as we venture down those dark true crime paths together. Join us every Sunday as we explore the nature of these often heinous and heartbreaking cases. You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. You can visit our website at crimetimenerds.com or follow our social media platforms. Don't forget to trust your gut, and we hope you join us each and every week. Darkcast Network. The light shines brightest on our indie podcasts. Cause of Death portrays imagery of death, war, and destruction. It may not be suitable for children under the age of 13. Welcome to Cause of Death. I'm your host, Jackie Moranti. 
Before we get started, I want to announce that my podversary is coming up on April 17th. The episode that drops on that day will be a very special 100 Seconds to Midnight episode. We're going to go back to the beginning of the podcast and revisit the HIV-AIDS pandemic. I'll be talking with several men who lived through that pandemic. They're going to tell us, you and me, about what that was like and how AIDS almost wiped out their culture. I'm so looking forward to this episode. Those stories are so important especially for those of us who don't really understand what was going on in the LGBTQ community at that time. Please join us for Killing a Culture, Revisiting the AIDS Pandemic. With that, I would like to extend an invitation to anyone who is living in Africa during the pandemic. If you were a part of a community or if you were a medical professional in Africa during those years and would like to talk about your experience, please DM me on Facebook or Twitter. I can be found on Facebook at Cause of Death and on Twitter at Cause of Death 10. I would very much appreciate hearing the perspective from someone who was on the continent at that time. Today, I'm going to be talking about the third component in the DTaP vaccine, pertussis. I want to start this episode with a personal story, the story of my good friend Russ. Russ was an incredible guy. He did some really funky things just because he wanted to, or just because he could. He rode a horse across the United States. This got him some attention from some major magazines back in the late 90s. He rode his motorcycle across the U.S. a few times, and that got him no attention at all, but he kind of liked it better that way. He somehow ended up owning Doris Day's camel. I'm really not sure how that came about, but he had that camel for years. Russ lived in the desert of California. He loved the desert. He always told me that the desert had its own life, its own vibe. Russ and I explored the desert together a couple of times. Me, being a mountain girl, it was weird to be in a place that was so flat and so vast. Russ was always the guy that told me that if you're not peeing on a hike, you're not drinking enough water. Russ and I had other common friends, and we'd all get together in L.A. or Las Vegas. We had a ton of fun in our little group. Russ and I never had any chemistry. He was just my good friend. He was the guy I called when I was in trouble, and he would find a way to get me out of it. He would bash all my boyfriends. He taught me that not only was it okay to be single, but that I was probably better off that way. I lived in Wyoming when I met Russ. Then I moved to Texas, then back to my home state of Colorado. Russ never moved. He just traveled. He once told me that I don't have to take up residency in a state in order to find out what it's like to live there. I could always just go on vacation. (laughs) Russ and I talked a lot on the phone. He had a crush on one of our mutual friends and made me promise not to tell. I really wanted them to get together, but I kept my promise until after he passed. And I regret doing that, but a promise is a promise. Russ was an absolute genius. 
He had one of those secret squirrel government jobs. He'd tell you that he was an electrician, but he was probably a rocket scientist or something. All the years I knew him, I never knew what he really did for a living. And of course, after I got into science, he never asked me what I did either. He was pretty sure that I wasn't an electrician, though. Russ called me one night late in 2013 or early 2014 to tell me that he was sick. He had been hospitalized with pertussis, and he asked me if that was serious. I told him that if it was serious enough to be hospitalized, then it was pretty serious. He was down and out even after getting out of the hospital. I could hear him gasping. The cough he had was classic for pertussis. It's not a barking cough. It's a whoop. That was what my buddy Russ sounded like, and it was awful. I kept up with Russ over the next year. I called him a couple of times a week. Even though the cough went away, he never got back on his feet again. He was never the same. He was experiencing convulsions. He couldn't take a deep breath, and his circulation was poor. Then one day I called, and he didn't answer, and he never returned my call. A mutual friend of ours called and told me that my friend had died. He had long-term lung damage secondary to pertussis. My friend Russ died on December 29th of 2014. Russ was gone. A few weeks later, I told our mutual friend that he had a crush on her. There was no point in keeping that secret anymore. I miss Russ to this day. He was my friend, my protector, my confidant. I think of him often when I drive through the desert, when I go to Las Vegas, or when I see a camel. I think of Russ and his adventures. When he called me to tell me about his illness and to ask for my advice, the first thing I asked him was when he had been vaccinated. I banged my head on the nearest hard surface when he told me that he hadn't been vaccinated since he was a kid. I remember saying, Russ, no, you're supposed to be vaccinated every 10 years, whether you need it or not. And he said, well, where the hell was that advice when I needed it? So here I am telling you that you need to be vaccinated every 10 years, whether you need it or not. Our next story begins with etiology and pathology. Bordetella pertussis is a small, aerobic, gram-negative rod. It produces several antigenic and biologically active products. Each one is responsible for the clinical features of pertussis. Pertussis toxin invades the Golgi apparatus of the host and destroys cilia. Filamentous hemagglutinin helps the bacteria adhere to the cilia and suppresses the inflammation in the airways. Agglutinogens attach to the fimbrae of the lungs. 
Adenylate cyclase toxin targets the phagocytic cells and inhibits neutrophil apoptosis. Basically, it evades the defense systems that I talked about in my first More Than You Ever Wanted to Know episode. Go back and listen to that. Protactin is a virulence factor of the disease. It promotes adhesion to the tracheal epithelial cells. Tracheal cytotoxin is a cell wall peptidoglycan fragment that cannot be classified as either an exotoxin or an endotoxin. This toxin kills ciliated epithelial cells in the respiratory tract. Even though an immune response to at least one of these products will trigger immunity, patients will not remain immune forever. The bacteria attach to the cilia of the respiratory epithelial cells. Then they produce toxins that paralyze the cilia and cause inflammation of the respiratory tract. This interferes with the clearing of pulmonary secretions. You can't cough anything up. Because lymphocytosis is promoted, but chemotaxis is impaired, the organism can evade host immune systems. At one time, it was thought that B. pertussis did not invade the tissues, but recent studies have shown the bacteria to be present in alveolar macrophages. The incubation period is usually 7 to 10 days, and there are three stages of the illness, catarrhal, proximal, and convalescent. The catarrhal stage begins with common flu-like symptoms. Where have we heard that before? Like everywhere? Yeah. Fever, runny nose, cough, sneezing. The cough will gradually get worse over the next week or so, and the second stage, proximal, begins. Fever will remain low-grade throughout the course of the illness. Once the proximal stage begins, pertussis is usually suspected. The patient will begin to have severe bouts of dry coughing with a long inspiratory effort, followed by the whoop. The patient may become cyanotic during these attacks. Young children and infants may appear very ill and distressed. Vomiting and exhaustion will follow the episode. During the first two weeks of the proximal stage, the attacks will increase in frequency. They'll remain at the same level for another two to three weeks, and gradually they'll decrease. This stage usually lasts about one to six weeks, but may last up to ten weeks. Recovery during the convalescent stage is very gradual. The coughing attacks will become less and less frequent. Then they'll disappear in about two to three weeks. This is why pertussis is known as the 100-day cough. The attacks may or may not appear again over several weeks after the convalescent stage is over. Secondary bacterial pneumonia is the most common cause of pertussis-related death. Infants are at a much higher risk of ending up with complications. Neurologic complications, seizures, and encephalopathy can occur as a result of hypoxia from coughing. Pertussis toxin could also cause neurological damage. Again, this is more common in infants. Some other less serious complications include earaches, anorexia, and dehydration. Pressure effects from severe proxisms include pneumothorax, epistaxis, 
subdural hematomas, broken ribs, urinary incontinence, syncope, difficulty sleeping, hernias, and rectal prolapse. Doesn't that sound like a great time? Pertussis is highly communicable. Patients are infectious from the beginning of the catarrhal stage through the third week after the onset of proxisms. Even when the patient is treated with antibiotics, they remain infectious for at least five days after the beginning of treatment. The average mortality rate of pertussis is around 4%, most of these being children under the age of one year. There is no great treatment for pertussis. Mostly, it's supportive care. Antibiotics can help if the disease is caught before it progresses too far, but antibiotics don't always help. The reservoir for pertussis is humans, often older people who believe they have a cold will infect infants. Infection occurs person to person through the aerosol route. There are those respiratory droplets, someone coughs or sneezes, and everyone gets sick. Pertussis is perfectly avoidable, so just go get vaccinated. Immunity following the disease is not permanent, so patients are usually vaccinated during recovery. Pertussis cases are on the rise in the U.S., and reasons vary. Diagnostic testing for pertussis has gotten much better over the years. Doctors are recognizing the symptoms more. There is a heightened awareness and better reporting. But on the flip side, there have also been changes in the molecular structure of the organism. Yeah, it's mutating. This is causing a wane in vaccine-induced immunity. The switch from whole toxin vaccines to acellular vaccines is part of that, but also there are those who refuse to vaccinate their children at all, and adults who think they don't need to be vaccinated, like my friend Russ. Okay, now that I've mentioned whole toxin and acellular vaccines, I'm going to explain that. Then we'll go on to history. Whole cell pertussis vaccines are made from suspensions of inactivated B pertussis cells, the whole cell. These vaccines have been licensed for use in infants since the 1940s. They're about 90% effective in preventing serious pertussis disease. They are, however, associated with several local adverse events, such as swelling and pain at the injection site, fever, arrhythmia, and some systemic events, such as drowsiness, fretfulness, and anorexia. More severe systemic events include encephalopathy, convulsions and limpness, reduced responsiveness, and cyanosis. This is known as hypotonic hyporesponsiveness. It's very important to note that these adverse events were very rarely seen, and they were very rarely fatal. The most serious of these events, encephalopathy, occurred in only 10 of 1 million doses. Most often, local adversity was seen. We all know how bad tetanus shots hurt. For this reason, the U.S. government moved to the acellular vaccine in 1991 which has an efficacy rate of 59 to 89%. That's much lower 
Acellular vaccines were made from the surface proteins, filamentous hemagglutinin, protactin, and fimbrae. While these vaccines still have types 1 and 2 in their makeup, they don't touch the efficacy rate of whole cell vaccines. Okay, now that I've talked about whole cell and acellular vaccine, let's find out how they came into being. Grab your popcorn and snuggle it by the fire. It's history time. There is no ancient history to pertussis. There aren't cave drawings or writings from Hippocrates. And there are no cute dogs rushing pertussis antitoxin across Alaska to save the children. There are no whispers of epidemics or outbreaks or pandemics. There's really not much before the early 1900s. Now, this doesn't mean it wasn't around. It just means it wasn't identified as something that killed millions. The first recognized pertussis epidemic occurred in Paris, France in 1578. This was described very clearly by Guillaume de Bellot. He referred to this disease as Quinte, but it had several names over the years, one of them being the 100-day cough. There are other recollections suggesting that pertussis was around much longer, but they're scattered and they don't give any firm details. While pertussis had been observed under a microscope in 1900, it wasn't until 1906 at the Pasteur Institute in Brussels that Jules Bourdais and Octave Guedjou first isolated the bacteria using a special auger that they had developed in order to isolate it. The media is called BG, which stands for Brilliant Green, and it's still in use today. These samples were taken from Bourdais's five-month-old daughter and Genju's young son. Genju would later develop the first pertussis vaccine in 1912. This was an inactivated vaccine based on killed B. pertussis bacteria. During this time, clinical pertussis was described as a primary infection in young children. Very few reinfections in adolescents and young adults were reported. Many times, secondary infections were overlooked. If the patient had a fever, wheezing, or a productive cough, the disease would not be considered related to pertussis, even if the original symptoms presented as pertussis and had moved into secondary bacterial or viral infection. By 1914, several labs in Europe and the U.S. were making vaccines using stock from the original organism that Jinju had isolated. The problem they faced was establishing the efficacy of these vaccines. Morbidity and mortality due to pertussis were high in the early years of the 20th century, and research on the disease became a major focal point. The Ontario Provincial Laboratory in Canada began producing pertussis vaccine in 1919. Then Connaught Labs followed in 1920. A new approach to producing pertussis vaccine was emerging at this time. They began using phase one bacteria, bacteria that was fresh and had been isolated more recently. They feared that the older bacteria had weakened and had less efficacy. From 1926 to 1930, there were 36,013 deaths from pertussis in the United States. 
the highest mortality being among infants and young children. We can't talk about this period in history without mentioning the Great Depression. This era has been an area of study when it comes to socioeconomics and infectious disease. I'm going to go farther into socioeconomics in a future episode, but this will be an introduction so you can get your feet wet. The Great Depression began when the stock market crashed in August of 1929. It lasted until March of 1933 when FDR introduced the New Deal. While I'm not going to get into the politics of the Great Depression or whether the New Deal was a good deal, we need to understand some things about what sudden and extreme poverty meant to the average citizens during the Depression. When it comes to what caused the Great Depression or why banks closed or how people lost all their money, I have to do some serious research. I'm not going to get into the causes and effects of the Great Depression right now. Suffice to say that it happened, and because of that, people suffered. Unemployment peaked during 1933 with a whopping 24.9%. Homelessness and soup kitchens were everywhere. People lost everything, especially those with money in the bank. My grandmother was a child during the Depression. She told stories of the family going from one farm to another picking beets by hand. This was the grandmother on my mother's side. They had come from Russia to escape communist oppression there. Here, they didn't find their lives much better. About two-thirds of the mortality rate among adults in the 1930s can be attributed to six causes cardiovascular disease, cancer, influenza and pneumonia, tuberculosis, motor vehicle accidents, and suicide. Children suffered a different fate. Diphtheria pertussis, polio, measles, mumps, and rubella were among the highest causes of morbidity and mortality among children. Children died because of a lack of medical care. There was no money to pay a doctor at the time, and doctors wanted to be paid. There were hospitals that were run by churches, but there weren't enough of them to help all the children that were sick. Imagine living in a tent city with very little to eat, no job, no plan, no bank account, and your infant comes down with pertussis. All you can do is hope for the best. Vaccines were hard to come by, and they were expensive, especially for those who had nothing. During the mid-1930s, scientists at Connaught Labs began to prepare and test a more effective pertussis vaccine. Dr. Nels Silverthorne was a pediatrician based at the Hospital for Sick Children. He worked in the whooping cough clinic at the hospital. He began collecting fresh strains of the bacteria on cough plates from children who were suffering from pertussis. He would then cultivate the bacteria and inactivate the cells to make the vaccine. After conducting several clinical trials on children in the Toronto area, Connaught began to distribute the vaccine in 1937. Supplies were limited and the production was laborious. 
but there was at least a little to go around. In the early 1940s, Connaught was eager to up production. Dr. Robert J. Wilson began experiments based on a new fluid culture medium. Dr. Leon Farrell and Dr. Edith Taylor were focusing on developing a larger-scale production method. Their methods made the vaccine more widely distributable. But then a new problem showed up. Kids had to be stuck with so many vaccines, they were pincushions. Wilson immediately began to work on combining the pertussis vaccine with the diphtheria vaccine. A few years later, they combined diphtheria, pertussis, and tetanus. They then combined this vaccine with the polio vaccine in 1955. This vaccine was short-lived due to the adverse events from combining too much stuff into one handy-dandy shot. A person can have some illness occur after receiving a vaccine. My favorite so far has been anthrax. I'm down for the count for a couple of days after getting the anthrax vaccine. COVID vaccines are no picnic for me either. I want to interject another personal story here. Today, it's funny, but back then I was pretty sure I was going to die. Before I could go to college, I had to prove that I had been vaccinated for measles, mumps, rubella, pertussis, tetanus, diphtheria, and hepatitis B. I went to my doctor, and since I had moved several times, my medical records were God knows where, and I had to get all my vaccinations again. My doc gave me the option of doing them one at a time or getting them all at once. And since I hate going to see my doctor unless I'm absolutely dying, I chose to get everything at once, one shot in each arm, and I titered out a hep B. My doc gave me the sideways glance and said that he'd do it, but he thought it was better to wait a couple of weeks between doses. Nah, I said, let's get it over with. He reluctantly gave me the injections, and two days later I was sick in bed, and I stayed sick for three days. I was still pretty weak when I went back to work. This was why companies decided it was much better to separate that polio vaccine out of the DTP vaccine. By 1959, there was rising concern that the whole cell pertussis vaccine was causing adverse events. We talked about these earlier. Questions about the adverse events that were caused by the whole cell vaccine were raised in the 1970s, and this changed the attitudes of parents surrounding the vaccine. Many parents were refusing to vaccinate their children for fear that they would become seriously ill after receiving the vaccine. Sweden and Japan suspended their pertussis immunization programs. This resulted in an increase in incidence rates. The rub here is that no researchers could develop a direct link between the vaccine and the adverse events that were happening. But during the 1980s, with cases on the rise worldwide, they began to look at other ways to make it and make it safer. In 1996, after extensive clinical trials in several countries, Connaught Labs introduced their five-component pertussis vaccine. It was licensed that year in Canada and then expanded globally. 
Several other vaccine companies joined suit, and acellular pertussis vaccines became the trend. Today, we still see outbreaks of pertussis around the world. Pertussis affects 48.5 million people yearly, and roughly 295,000 of those die. These deaths are sourced back mostly to adolescents and adults who don't receive the boosters. When you couple that with a recent trend in people just not vaccinating their children at all, well, disaster looms. Okay, so that's pertussis. Next time, I'm going to be releasing my first 100 Seconds to Midnight episode. Then we come back to talk about measles. Let's jump right into the Q&A. I had some really interesting questions this time. I thank you all for writing in and asking, or in some cases, just telling me about what's going on in your life. My good friend Claire asked if tetanus could have been seen as possession back in the day. This is a phenomenal question. Pretty much everything was considered possession at some point back in the day. I didn't really come across many stories about it, but I'm sure it happened. I think part of the reason that Hippocrates considered sweating the disease out of people was because he thought they were possessed. You'll hear more about possession as time goes on. TB sufferers were often thought to be vampires, and many times autistic children were thought to be possessed by fairies. So the idea of possession and tetanus can't be denied. I've also had a few conversations with Sue, one of my Australian listeners. She recently convinced me to listen to Cheryl Atkinson's podcast. I don't know what that woman is going to talk about after COVID is over, but I did listen to about half of an episode. Then I got so angry that I wanted to throw things. The only thing that kept me from throwing things is that I want my entire deposit back when I leave my apartment. So I restrained myself, and I quit listening to that drivel. I'm going to give a quick down and dirty on how to spot BS. That podcast is undulterated BS. The first thing I want you to consider is that I will never use Wikipedia to give you information. I don't even look at Wikipedia. Why? Well, because anyone can put anything on there, whether it's true or not. The second thing I will never do is give you conflicting or false information. I won't lie to you, even if the truth goes against my beliefs. You've heard me do this in several episodes. I'll tell you that I think something happened or I believe something to be true, but I will not make you eat my rhetoric. When people use bad information to begin with and then start feeding you rhetoric that you can't quite connect the dots on, they're lying. If you choose to listen to shows like Cheryl Atkinson, listen carefully. Question what she and her guests are saying. If you hear a gap in the story, try to fill in that gap. If the gap doesn't follow a logical and true path, then they're not telling the truth. Be careful of what you swallow from any podcast or any media platform. 
even mine. If you hear something that doesn't make sense or you can't follow my logic, please feel free to ask or even challenge me on it. If you hear that I've given false information or made a mistake, call me out. I'm confident enough that I'll issue a correction and an apology. I will check your sources, though. If you can give me sound sources that contradict what I'm telling you, then I'll be happy to correct. Other podcasts won't do this. They want you to take whatever they give you as gold. Shaylee's message began, two things. I have to admit that when I saw that, I almost stopped. I know that someone is going to dink my show via messenger, and I thought this was it when I saw the words, two things. I took a deep breath and started to read the rest. Number one, I want to say how thankful I am for the information you give in all your episodes. It allows me to continue to learn and grow and think for myself by absorbing information from so many resources. Number two, I was able to put the information to excellent use today when an allergy specialist told my 15-year-old child to take ivermectin. Let me let that sink in. Before going to the hospital, if they got COVID. Also, this specialist said for them not to get the vaccine booster because they don't, quote, need it. I almost fell out. Thankfully, my child has the ability to think for themselves, and we discussed how terrible that recommendation was, laughed at the presumption that we needed his recommendation, and they informed their regular doctor so that he can run interference for less educated people. Here's to learning, growing, and evolving. Thanks again. I was so relieved that the email was positive. I was also thankful that I could make a difference in Ari's decision to not follow doctor's orders. Good for you, Ari. It's okay to refuse treatment. Your doctor cannot make you receive a treatment that goes against what, in this case, is your better judgment. He can't make you receive treatment for poor judgment either, but that's another story for another time. I'm so happy to hear this and so happy that you wrote to me, Shaylee. I'm also glad that the ivermectin experience turned out to be no more than a good laugh on your part. Allergy docs really shouldn't be giving advice on COVID at all. They've had very little training in microbiology or virology. Ari, I'm so happy that you and your mom listen to my show. Keep listening. It's a pretty fantastic journey, and I'm so glad that you're here to take it with me. Lastly, my daughter Jessica posted to the Facebook page about an opportunistic pathogen called Cronobacter sakazakim. This is a rare bacteria that was found in a plant that was making baby formula in Michigan. I'll be watching this story and I'll let you know how it all works out. I'm going to give a sneak peek into Coronabacter sakazakim. I really think that Jessica hunted this one down just to hear me pronounce it during the show, 
knowing that I'd have to say it several times. That rotten child of mine. Opportunistic pathogens are very rare. And yes, there will be a whole season about them at some point. But for now, the down and dirty of Coronabacter sakazakim is this. It's a gram-negative bacteria that survives in very dry conditions. It can be found in a variety of foods like baby formula, powdered milk, herbal teas, and starches. The natural habitat of Coronabacter sakazakim is unknown. It primarily affects the very old, the very young, and the immunocompromised. But as we've recently seen, that doesn't always hold true. It will usually cause septicemia, but it can cause an array of other symptoms as well. Again, opportunistic infections will come up in a future season of the show, so keep listening. These are horrifying pathogens. Thanks so much, Jessica. I appreciate you asking, even if it was to stump me. I want to thank you all for listening to Cause of Death. A quick reminder to subscribe, rate, and review, and definitely share this podcast with everyone you know. Links to everything Cause of Death can be found in the show notes. I appreciate all of you, and I'll see you in two weeks when the first 100 Seconds to Midnight episode drops. Thank you again, and remember that your doctor isn't always right. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli. I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.